Kennedy Street, please visit kennedystreetcio.org. Recovery is possible. We are live right this very second. Have a Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to our Wednesday Kennedy Street Live uh, Recovery Talks. Um, I'm Claire Kennedy. We have Kev Kennedy and we have the fabulous Dr. Robert Lefevre today with us, who's um, going to join us with a chat and um, lots of interesting information. Um, I'll give you a little overview of what it is that we do, just in case you don't know. So, um, I myself am, um, who am I? Um, yeah, I'm Claire Kennedy. I, I'm CEO of a very small charity called Kennedy Street. That's what this is connected to. I'm also a really passionate business for good developer. Um, and I'm a absolutely devoted mommy and wife. So um, I'm passionate about the, the recovery stuff that we do. Um, and... Um, we really, the, the whole purpose of these talks really is to just help those that are in the community that are still suffering so that, that don't know about recovery yet um, and to reach to reach those people in, in the hope that they may pick up something valuable that they can actually use as a as a turning point for themselves. I like to call those moments of clarity. I think, you know, we all need to be presented with moments of clarity. And I hope that some some of the viewers might get some moments of clarity from this talk. Um, Dr. Lefevre, I, I will let him introduce himself. It is um, World Leading Psych... Uh, I'd like to call him a world leading, psychi um, leading psychiatrist in the world of addiction. And Kev, I'm going to let him introduce himself and give you a little bit more detail about Dr. Dr. Robert. So right over to you, Kev. Hello, everyone. Uh, lovely to see you today. Uh, I hope you're all keeping well in the present circumstances. My name's Kevin Kennedy. Um, I am a, a recovering alcoholic. Um, and I am the uh, patron of uh, Kennedy Street. Um, and what we do is we are a peer-led charity set up for people uh, in recovery, uh, for individuals and businesses. We must um, we must say in for if you run a business and you need to know more about um, addiction or how to help your workforce, um, we can come into your business and we can give chats and we can help you in any way you, you seem fit. Um, today, I'm really pleased, actually. We've got Dr. Lefevre with us, who is a leading specialist in addiction. He has his own practice in South Kensington. Um, I know he's helped 5,000 people in patients. Uh, so 5,000 people that, uh, that are indebted to him. Uh, he's also a man of many talents. He's, he, he's a writer and he he, uh, he he writes music. He's just recently uh, written a book of sonnets. He's written 23 books uh, as well as helping all these people. Uh, his latest is Street, uh, Streetwise Guide to Recovery, which is on uh, EER uh, Publishers. Uh, he's also a mad musician which uh, which I, I totally connect with, um, has written plays and, and, and operas, and, and we were just having a long conversation there about that, which I won't bore you with, but a, a very fascinating man, and I, I'm really looking forward to hearing him speak today. So um, over to you, uh, Dr. Lefevre. Thank you so much. Um, I prefer just to be Robert, because it's Robert who is the alcoholic, the person with an eating disorder, the gambler, the shopper, spender, workaholic, compulsive helper. That's Robert. And if I get too far away from that and just move on into my professional work and, and into my various interests, then I lose everything. So number one, I'm an addict. Number two, I'm very happily married to Pat. And number three, I'm a professional and I do various things. But I've got to get it in that order, because if I forget that I'm an addict, and the last meeting I went to was this morning, uh, the, the one before that was last night, um, you know, I do three regular meetings every week, because I need to remind myself. And the example I use is that I'm short-sighted, and I wore specs for 50 years. And when I took them off, you know, I was still short-sighted. And I, I think that is 
ridiculous. Surely I should have been, I should have got better by then. Well, my last use of any mood altering substance um, was 12th of October 1984. So I'm 35 years abstinent. I can't say I'm in recovery because that's for my sponsor to decide and for my wife and for you and for other people who know me because my recovery will be apparent in my behavior and I don't see my behavior. Everybody else sees it, but I don't. So it took me until I was age 47 to get into um, abstinence. And the reason for that was I was too clever and too determined. You know, I was born with a reasonable brain and I was well-educated. And I thought that that's all I had to do, just work things out. Um, and then I could solve everybody's problems and my own. Um, it didn't actually work out that way. And I did two years in the army, you know, after leaving school. I was in the Royal Signals. I've laid lines across the North Yorkshire Moors in two feet of snow for uh, two days and, uh, well, three days and two nights without any sleep at all. And I've been a junior hospital doctor. And most of all, I've been to British private school. If you want to learn about abuse and bullying, that's where you need to go. Go to British private school. Um, certainly in my day, maybe they've changed now, I'm not sure. Either way, that's my strength. And it kept me out of recovery. It, because I was too clever and too determined. It was only when I was on the deck and looked in the mirror and was tears running down my face. Why are you doing this? And I didn't have an answer. But then when you look at my family, my mother's mother died of alcoholism. My father's father died of alcoholism. There's addiction of one kind or another in every generation. So it's not surprising that I got it. And of course, I married Meg, whose, whose father was alcoholic. And so, you know, the family member and the addict got together in a perfect fit. Look at that, we're a perfect fit. So I needed to be fixed and Meg needed to be needed. And so needed to be fixed, needed to be needed, perfect fit. And so then we had children and um, they've had problems of one kind or another, which I'm not prepared to talk about, but they're all doing beautifully and I love them dearly. Um, and all I'm illustrating is that for anybody listening now or viewing, I've been there I've done that and I've very much got the t-shirt. My wife Meg died after we'd been married for 48 and a half years. Uh, we've been together for 51 years. And she died three weeks after I came out of bankruptcy, caused by a fraud by my accountant and of course by my own incompetence at running a business. So I, I've been there. I, I know what it is to have desperate pain and, and to have to start again which I've done, but here I am, married to Pat for the last eight years, and having the life of my dreams. So when we have trouble, it's a challenge, but we can, we can come through that and move on. And I didn't relapse during that terrible time. I used to go to meetings. I used to walk around the street people who were begging, and they quite possibly had more money than I did. Um, but I felt sad for them because I don't know what their future would be, but I knew what my future was going to be. I was going to be the Robert I want to be rather than the idiot I was born to be. And so that's my story. I created one of the first rehabs in the UK. So it's on that basis that I have treated on an individual basis over 5,000 inpatients in the course of 23 years. Subsequently, I've done outpatient work, which I still do. But my life isn't over. I'm young. I'm only 83, for heaven's sake. Um, I've got wonderful years ahead of me. And I'm very grateful to you for inviting me today. I look forward to talking with you. Amazing. Thank you so much, Robert. 
not Dr. Lefevre, Robert, I feel like I know you now. Um, what an honour and an absolute privilege it is to have you here. Um, I've known of you for a few years. Um, I follow you on Facebook. I love, 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 love reading your daily posts. You you do inspire me as a fellow um, person in recovery. Um, yeah, I've, I've always wanted to meet you and I've always wanted to speak to you. So thank you. I can't thank you enough for coming on um, and sharing with us your, your story. And, you know, it really made me emotional just listening to you. It's, you know, how blessed we are to, to, to come into contact with fellow travellers like yourself, you know, I really, you know, I hope somebody is out there that, that's listening that just might get something from this chat today um, because that is where the power is, isn't it? It is It is about listening. It's about identifying and, um, yeah, amazing. I've got loads of identification. Uh, well, the first fellowship I ever went to was Al-Anon um, because of the various addicts of one kind or another in my family. And I told the story about um, what had been happening. They said, well, we think you might benefit from going to Families Anonymous, which is for drug addicts rather than for people with alcohol. I said, well, I've got the whole nest of them. And so that's where I started. But subsequently, um, I, I went across to America to a conference. Um, basically, I thought it'd be interesting to understand something about addiction. And a lady said to me, would you like to come to a meeting? And I, and I looked and there was this label, Overeaters Anonymous. I thought, I haven't got a problem, but I'm not doing anything. Let's, let's go. And so there I was in Atlanta, Georgia, in the middle of the Bible Belt. And they said the Lord's Prayer and they prayed for their daily abstinence. And I thought, you know, this is really not for me. But the next day in the Radisson Hotel, as I was getting through my third plate of corned beef hash, and America says corned beef hash this size, I thought, well, I wonder if Shirley had a point. And so then I got in touch with somebody there who suggested I might look up meetings in, in London and might volunteer to do any service. And so he reckoned that that's the way I could, would help myself. And so I went to my first meeting in London, and there were two young girls and me. I was 47. They were in their 20s. And they said, let's have a group conscience. Well, I got no idea what a group conscience was. They said, well, we need a secretary. So as I had been told to, to volunteer, I said, yes, I could do the secretary. I thought it meant keeping the minutes. And so in my very first meeting, I was voted secretary. And in the week after that, Neither of them turned up, so I was there on my own. But I knew where the literature was, and so I got out the literature, and I read the preamble. I invited myself to give the chair. I gave the chair. I responded to it. I said the serenity prayer, gave myself a hug, put a pound in the pot, and I went home. And I've been coming ever since. Um, so I don't know what one a week is times 32, so it's 50, 52 times... 34, sorry, that, that's the number of, of times I've been going to that particular meeting. Um, and nowadays I do three meetings a week and any chairs I'm asked to do. So you'd have thought I'd have got better by now, but <laughs> I'm still short-sighted and I'm still an addict. I can say, damn it, but it doesn't change anything. I'm still an addict. And so people sometimes find that a bit confusing. Um, my own brother said to me, but Robert, you're quite intelligent. And I said, well, thanks for the quite. That was, that was kind of you. Um, so my intelligence is not sufficient. I have to work the steps. Now, I'm emphasizing that because people often imagine that just by going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon or whatever, that we can get better that way. That's not true. We need to work the steps. That's what the old timers said. They said, these are the steps we took. This is what we actually did. So the first thing I, I focus on is my abstinence, because without the abstinence, I, I've got nothing. And so I don't drink alcohol. Um, I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't have sugar or white flour. I don't have caffeine in anything. 
I don't gamble. I don't shop and spend in the way that I used to. I used to shop for England. Now I shop for things I need. Uh, when I'd be able to go out, I'm still in self-imposed uh, shutdown. And I don't anticipate getting out of this room or this flat uh, during this year because I've got underlying medical condition which makes me vulnerable. And so here I am with my wife in this flat for at least a year. I should be so lucky. I'm having the life of my dreams. And that's what recovery has given me. The ability, I want three things. I want peace of mind in spite of unsolved problems. And we've all got problems. I want peace of mind anyway. I want happy and mutually fulfilling relationships. I never say I'm married because it's two words short. The other two words are so far. And so that gives Pat the opportunity to say, you think so. And so I have to behave myself. I have to be sensitive to things that she's sensitive about. And the third thing I want is spontaneity, creativity, and enthusiasm. Spontaneity, let's just do it now. Don't say, why are we waiting? Just, just do it. Creativity, oh, yes. And, you know, the music and my writing and my photography and other things. That's what life's all about. You know, having the life of my dreams. And the enthusiasm. Enthusiasm comes from the Greek words en theos. Theos is God. En is within. It's the God inside us that is our enthusiasm. You see it in other people's eyes. They light up. You see it in the children. Wow. Now, I believe the spirit is immortal. We are spiritual beings mm -hmm. having a temporary physical human experience. So I believe that my wife, Meg, who died 10 years ago, she's on her spiritual journey. She's still there. I don't know where. And I'm not interested in finding out. Um, because I will find out in due course, you know, when I eventually die. But I hope that won't be in the next 20 years. Because I, I'm busy. I've got things I want to do. So I think we are spiritual beings having a temporary human experience. And on that basis, I'm able to have the life of my dreams. Um, I'm very interested that intelligence and recovery, um, I mean, for my, speaking personally, um, I understood as, a, as intellectually that if I kept on drinking, uh, I, I, I would die. I understood that when people said to me, look, you keep going like the way you're doing and you're going to die. I understood that. But why couldn't I grasp that emotionally uh, at the beginning? Is there some sort of men mental process that you need to, you need to um, go on to, 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 to accept that? I think so. Incidentally, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm a GP. I, I've never been a psychiatrist. I've never had any training in, in psychiatry other than at medical school. But mm. as a GP, I've done over a quarter of a million consultations. I know the individuals who came to see me. And I think what we, as people with addiction problems of one kind or another, have got is neurotransmission disease. Now, I'm using a, a deliberately complex term, but let me explain it. I think there's something wrong in the way that my thinking brain talks to my feeling brain. And I don't have a problem with my thinking brain, apart from what Alcoholics Anonymous would call stinking thinking. Um, I, I, I have that problem, same as anybody else. I can just go too far. But my feeling brain has always been a complete mess. And I think that's what we've got. We've got something wrong in the way that one neuron talks to another in the feeling side of our brains. So we're born with an inexplicable sense of inner emptiness. I felt down, I felt empty, I felt bereft when there was nothing wrong with my life. That I think is what I've got. I think it's what all of us have got. And so the first thing we've got, which we can see right from childhood, is that inexplicable sense of inner emptiness. Why are you crying? Don't know. That's the truth. And later on, we will say to people, you know, why are you drinking? Well, it helps me. 
And so that's what happens. The second thing, after the genetic predisposition, is the trauma. We have something that happens that wakes up a craving for mood alteration. I want it, I want it, I want it, and I want it now. And so the trauma is not the cause of the addiction. It's a contributory factor after the genetic. So lots of people have traumas, but if they don't have the genetic predisposition, they won't become addicts. My wife Meg had a terrible childhood, but she wasn't an addict of any kind. So she had the trauma, but not the genetic predisposition that her father had. And so first is the, the genetics, the second is the trauma, and third is the exposure to something that works. And I discovered sugar. At the age of five or six, I fell off a punt. I was sucking a lollipop. And it didn't matter if I drowned, but I was not going to lose the lollipop. Well, you could tell from that moment almost what was going to happen. In my adult life, my weight changed by 50 pounds. I go up and down and up and down. I was always on a diet and then I'd binge and starve and all the rest of it. Um, I had three different sizes of suits in my cupboard because it's more convenient. I didn't have to worry about changing weight. I just got out a different suit. Um, I picked food out of dustbins. I picked foods out of, when I turned it away. I used to volunteer to do the washing up because then I could finish off other people's leftovers. I conducted an orchestra when I was drunk. Um, they didn't invite me back, um, which is no surprise. I lost three months' income on the turn of one card in a poker game. And wives don't like that. I, I imagine, Claire, that you wouldn't be very happy if Kevin had lost three months' income on the turn of one card in the way that I did. What I'm illustrating is that this is my story. I'm a fully paid-up addict, but I don't do it now. I haven't done any of that for the last 35 years, but I could do it tomorrow. I've got no intention of doing it, but I could do it. Now, what I think happens, the London Taxi Drivers Study, I think, was very persuasive. Cabbies have to find their way around, and so they have an orienteering part in their brain. And PET scans, a particular type of brain scan, showed that that part had enlarged. Um, as an example, this is not exact, but it has gone from the size of a little fingernail to the size of a thumbnail. Two years after they retired, it had gone back from the thumbnail to the little fingernail. The brain is plastic, it changes. And I have no doubt that by going to meetings and working the steps every day of my life, I do steps 10, 11, and 12, I'm sure my brain has changed physically, not just in terms of understanding and, and experience. It's changed physically. And this is why if I were to stop working the steps, it would take time before I relapse. I'd be in what's called, as you're well aware, the dry drunk state. I don't drink. You know, you know the, all the anger, all the ism of alcoholism is there, even in the absence of the alcohol. But it would take time for that size to shrink back to this. And this is what families find so confusing, because during that dry drunk time, we're angry, we're resentful, we're blaming, we're self-pitying, all the things that go with any, any addict. And yet we're not drinking or, or using sugar or white flour or caffeine or nicotine or whatever. And they find that very confusing, but it isn't, because that is the ism in its purest form. That's when we see what addiction really is. And then when we go back to drinking or using other things, then the family say, oh, we understand you now. Well, that's not the bit that needs the understanding. It's the dry drunk phase, the genuine addiction. That is the neurotransmission disease. That's what needs to be understood. And we treat it with all sorts of inappropriate things. For example, I'll just finish on this. I think alcoholism is a very inappropriate word because it's naming the illness after one of its treatments. Alcohol is one treatment, sugar might be another, nicotine's another, caffeine's another. They're all treatments for the neurotransmission disease. 
And they're rotten treatments because they've got such terrible side effects. So I don't want any of that. And so that's why I work the steps. I, every day I do steps 10, 11, and 12 because it keeps me having the life of my dreams. Uh, I would like to ask you, and I, I suspect you're obviously a great advocate of the 12 steps. Um, and two questions, really. Do you think the 12-step program – well, firstly, I'd like for, for you, because you are brilliant at doing this, is for anyone that's listening in and is saying, what, what are these steps, could, could you um, describe what these steps are? And secondly, do yeah. you think the 12 steps are a, a one-stop shop for, for a whole uh, raft of addiction? I, they are any form of addictive behavior will benefit from working the 12-step program, which was first created eight years, 80 years ago by Alcoholics Anonymous, by Dr. Bob and, and Bill W., who were the two co-founders, and it's been going ever since. And it now has millions of people throughout the whole world. And here in lockdown, we've got online meetings, and they're, they're wonderfully helpful. So the 12-steps, the study is uh, trust God, clean house, help others. So trust God is the thing that frightens people. Because, you know, I don't have any religious belief. I, I, I still don't. Uh, but my God is the 12-step program itself. It works for me. It's changed my life. So I, I'm very happy to, to believe in the 12-step program as my God. So and then clean house, you know, sort out all the mess in my life. And then finally, help others. Because when A reaches out to help B, A gets better. It's when we take our minds off ourselves and put them onto somebody else that we get well. And that's the principle of the fellowships of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, the 12 steps. Step one, admitted that I was powerless and my life had become unmanageable. So powerless, as I say, I, I really had tried. I tried. I lost my gut in trying to control my various addictive behaviors. It didn't work. And only at the age of 47 did I finally acknowledge I was powerless. Over it. I couldn't stop it. And my life was unmanageable. Well, you only had to ask my wife about that. Of course it was all over the place. Two, came to believe that a higher power than self could restore me to sanity. Well, people don't like the word sanity, but the various things I've described, such as picking food out of bins, and if that isn't insane, what is? Losing three months' income on the turn of one card in a poker game, that's insane. Conducting an orchestra when I was drunk, that's insane. You know, I don't have schizophrenia or... or um, bipolar disorder or anything like that. I'm not, it's not that type of thing, but it's insane in an addictive way. My behavior was absolutely insane. So I quite clearly, because I couldn't manage it, I needed a higher power than self. Step should, two should be instantaneous. If I'm powerless, I need a higher power. End of subject. And if people are having difficulty with step two, it means they haven't done step one properly. We need to go back and have another look at step one. And then step three, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the power of a higher power than self. Well, um, turning my life over, there are medical conditions that I've got that I can't do anything about. You know, at 83, you'd expect to have one or two things. Um, and that's the way it is. So turning my life over is sensible. Turning my will, oh, that's difficult for someone like me. I, I really do not want to turn my will over. I'm in charge, thank you very much. You know, and my wife Pat says to me, Robert, don't jaywalk. And she's delighted that I'm here in, in shutdown because I can't jaywalk. Um, well, you know, in the, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it gives the story of a jaywalker. Um, there's a chap getting repeatedly knocked down and he goes back and does it again. Well, that's exactly the story that I had. I went down and down and down and down. I just got up and then went down again. So I needed a higher power than self. And I was very happy to hand over my will, which was a difficult one, because I'm too strong-willed. I'm not weak-willed. I'm very strong. 
And that was a handicap. It wasn't an asset. Step four, made a full and fearless moral inventory of myself. People hear that as a full and fearful immoral inventory. They think, oh, I've got to tell all my dreadful sex secrets and all the rest of it. And now it says, well, um, why don't you just start by looking at the various things that you've done. When I did my step five, which was admitting to somebody else and to God and to myself the exact nature of what I'd done in my step four, the priest, lovely man, as I say, I have no religious belief, but he was absolutely lovely, and I'm very grateful to him, said to me, what are the worst things you've ever done? Tell me that right now. So I did. And I was free. We then spent another three and a half hours going through all the things I'd written in my full and fearless moral inventory. And a moral inventory is not an immoral. It's about my ethics, my values, my principles. Where have I betrayed them? Where have I done things which are really not the best, Robert, at all? So that's the moral inventory. That's in step four. And then step five, as I've said, you just admit it to somebody else. Then the central steps of the entire program are called the forgotten steps, because they are. People tend to want to go from step five, admitting what they've done wrong, to step eight, which is making a list of what we, uh, the people we've harmed, and step nine, making direct amends to them. We want to go boom, boom, and that's not there. We have the central spiritual steps of the entire program of step six and seven. Step six became entirely ready to have God remove my defects of character. Well, step seven, humbly asked God to remove my shortcomings. People will debate interminably the difference between a defect of character and a shortcoming. And Bill W. himself said, there's no difference. I just thought it would be better use of the English language to use two different terms. But people will debate. We've got, you know, the fellowship full of debaters. So let's have a look at step seven. And you'll see why step six is an entire step preparing one for it. Humbly, I don't do humble. Asked, I don't ask, I tell. God, who? To remove what to do something? My, for me, defects of character. So well, the defects of character I knew from the step four. But, oh, dearie me. Humbly ask God to remove my defects of character. That is huge. And therefore, step six took me two years to really work through and deal with it. Then step seven took me about half an hour. Because all I had to do was to look at this behavior, look at its opposite, and see, I don't want to go from the frying pan into the fire. I don't want to go from one extreme to another. I need something in the middle that's appropriate. I don't want to go from being bombastic and violent. Um, actually, I was never violent, but bombastic, certainly, to being a creep. That's not a, a difference. It's two sides of the same arrogant coin. I needed something in the middle just to be the, the Robert I can be. So step four, do the inventory. Step five, admit it to somebody else, to God and to myself. Step six, become ready to have God remove my defects character. Step seven, um, humbly ask God to remove my shortcomings. Step eight, made a list of all persons I'd harmed. Well, there are two traps in that. First of all, people put absolutely everybody down there. And, and the second trap is, oh, well, I've harmed myself, you know, which is true. But I don't think I should be top of the list. I think for people in Al-Anon, yes, harm myself should be the first. And, of course, the Al-Anon people are only too delighted to talk about all the addicts that they've harmed. And they forget that they've actually primarily harmed themselves. Whereas the addicts are the other way around. We think of all the, the, the people who harmed us. Well, actually... People were very understanding of me, very considerate, very caring, very loving. But I wasn't. It wasn't mutual. I didn't behave at 
towards them in the way they had grown towards me. So my step eight is making a list of those people and looking at my family and then my friends and so on. When I stopped playing poker, I looked around for my friends and they weren't there. Of course they weren't. I wasn't Robert. I was just another poker player. You know, when I stopped drinking, you know, the people just were looking for another drinking partner. They weren't interested in Robert. They just wanted a drinking partner. So in that way, I very much hurt myself and my relationships with my own addictive behavior. But primarily, I hurt other people. And those are the people I had to make amends to. And so step nine made direct amends to those I'd harmed. Well, that comes in several categories. Um, if I was having an affair with one of the girls who had the flat upstairs, I wasn't, but supposing I was, and I said to my wife, I'm so sorry, I've been having an affair with, with whoever upstairs. Well, what's my wife going to do with that information? It's only going to hurt her. So I need to shut up. I have to live with it. You don't have to make amends. And that's why the caveat is there. Except when to do so would injure them or others. So learning to shut up is a very important part of one step nine. And then I remember my sponsor saying, I, I said, well, I, I have no idea where that just chapters. No idea. He said, imagine he owes you 10 grand. You'll find him. So there are all sorts of little techniques like that that enabled us to, to make amends. Now, most people that I've, I've made amends to have said, oh, Robert, that's, you know, forget about it. It was then, it's not now. But I was willing to do it and to go out of my way. Some people said, I've got absolutely no time for you at all. You know, the way you behaved was absolutely disgusting and I never want to see anything. I never had anything to do with you. You're out of my life forever. And that's fair enough. I use that as a reminder of just how arrogant and objectionable my behavior can be. And so step nine is very important. And then steps 10, 11, and 12 are the maintenance steps. People sometimes say they do steps one, two, and three every day. I think that's crazy. Why do I have to go back to being powerless and all the rest of it? Step 10, continued to take personal inventory. And when I was wrong, promptly admitted it. Now, I do my step 10 on my iPhone. It's all in here, typed into the notes section. Day, event, person harmed. Day, event, person affected positively. It's in here for years, well, since iPhones were invented. It's, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of entries in there. But I keep it very simple like that, so I can scan it. I can go down here, and if I see greed, 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 or anger, anger, oh, careful, Robert, I'm going to have a look at that. Whereas if I'm writing an essay, in the first case, I'm not going to do it. But keeping it simple, I can scan it, and I can see where it's happening. And then if I see Pat, 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 well, Pat's the name of my wife, whoops, careful, Robert, otherwise so far is going to become a reality. So I use that as a working document. My step 10 actually keeps me, you know, keeps me married, I hope. Step 11, saw through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with the God of my understanding. Uh, prayers are often used as shopping lists. I don't think that's helpful. I think prayer is trying to change my behavior so I look at my, um, I pray to be honest, open-minded and willing, accepting, grateful, spontaneous, creative, enthusiastic. These are the things I pray for. I'm not praying for a sunny day or to win the lottery or anything. I, I wouldn't dream of doing the lottery. I don't, don't pray for tangible things like that. I change, I want to change me. I'm not trying to change the outside world. I want to change me. So that's what I pray for. And I pray in the shower. I'm never going to forget to have a shower. So I never forget to say my prayers. It's easy. Again, little techniques like that 
keep me having the life of my dreams. And I need those reminders because I've got a natural forgetting mechanism. My brain sometimes tells me lies and I don't know when. So it's no good relying upon my brain. I have to rely upon other people. And that's why I go to meetings to counter my denial. So I work the steps to get well and I go to meetings to counter my denial and to see other addicts like me. I say, oh, yeah, that's me. And then step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry the message to other alcoholics, addicts, eating disorder, whatever, and apply the principles in all our affairs. So there are two parts to step 12. The first is reaching out to help somebody else. As I said, when A reaches out to help B, it's A who gets better. But B might, and so that's a nice thing to do. And then to apply the principles, the how, the honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness in all our affairs. Does that mean I have to be honest with the inland revenue? Yes. Yes, it does. Use an accountant and be honest. Tell him the truth. Do I have to be honest with my wife? Yes, but not if I'm having an affair. Just shut up about it. Make the amend by not doing it again. So the 12 steps are a blueprint for life. And I have followed that blueprint for the last 35 years. I should be so lucky to have been introduced to this blueprint. I should be so lucky to be me. I should be so lucky to have the opportunities I do and to have the opportunities of sharing these insights and ideas with you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Dr. Lafina, so thank you. I mean, that was beautifully put. Couldn't have been, couldn't have asked anybody to explain it better. It was so beautifully articulated. Um, and um, the, the last question that Kev asked was, you know, is, is the 12-step programme the most successful program that there's a lot of questions well there's quite there's one particular gentleman who's at the i'll put his um his question up so this is um jim um so it's for all three of us i'm on the second day of my home detox and already finding it very hard it's followed by uh this this is followed by the 6th of july going in for a 12-week rehab because I'm dreading being away from family, worried about my peers, mostly worried about failure. I've read Kev's book, which I really identified with, many of my traits along with Kev's, just just hoping for some love tips and advice. And he has made a couple of other um, statements as well, which was, is the 12-step programme the best programme? Um this is the one I've chosen, or are there better ones with higher success rates? And and I hear that a lot, um, Robert, about, you know, is 12-step recovery the only option? So what are your views on that? Well, I first want to, want to just reply to Jim. Jim, you are in a very difficult situation because everything is so new. What I do is dead easy. I just do today what I did yesterday. That is not difficult. My risk is complacency, thinking that I know it all. If I think that, whoops, down I'll go. But in your case, it really is difficult what you're doing. And congratulations. If you're two days clean, it's better than one day clean. And don't worry about rehabs. Some of them are uh, pretty average. Others are brilliant. Um, so uh, let's hope you're lucky. But you'll find somebody there. It may be one of the other patients who really speaks your language. Um, I, I'm reminded of the first time I went to a rehab. I was there as a professional in residence. And I thought they were going to, to teach me. I'd be with the staff and they'd teach me all sorts of things. They opened the door, pushed me into one of the units and closed the door. I was there with the patients. <sighs> At the end of one week, I understood addiction better than I understood anything from my university and medical school. I learned from the patients. And so, Jim, you may find that, that you may or may not learn from the professionals, but you'll certainly learn from the other patients. And I wish you well. On the issue of whether the 12 steps are the best program, um, people will debate that uh, forever. Um, there's a program called SMART Recovery, 
Mm. Um, and the implication is if you're smart enough, you don't need a higher power. Well, that certainly wasn't true for me. And I've looked at the literature of, of smart recovery and I'm not happy with it. I'm, it's intelligent. Um, it's careful to, you know, make appropriate claims and so on. But it doesn't give a spiritual treatment for what I consider to be a spiritual illness. And this is an important point. I have a spiritual illness with consequences in my physical life, my mental life, my emotional life, my practical life, my professional life, my marital life. It has consequences right across the board. Now, if I treat any of those consequences individually, I'm not going to get well. I have to treat the spiritual illness, and then all of them get well. So that's the thing that I believe the 12-step program does fundamentally. It's not looking at just whether I've got HIV or whether I've got, uh, I need anger management, or whether I'm going through a difficult divorce or something like that. Those are all individual things which can be helped by individual professionals of one kind or another, or, or one program or another. But the spiritual program of the 12 steps helps all of it. So it just goes away on a day-to-day -day basis, and we have to maintain it. That's why I was mentioning the London Taxi Driver Study. I have to maintain my recovery. I can't think I've got it made. I think that the 12-step program is vital if you really want to deal with addiction. Now, there are a lot of people who use addictive substances who are not addicts. Um, about 60% of, of students use cannabis. It doesn't mean that 60% of all students are addicts. Um, it's the same number of students as anybody else. It's about one in six of the population. That's still an awful lot of people, but only one in six of us have addiction. But we certainly corner the market. We occupy 20% of all the hospital beds. 20% of all of them, not just the psychiatric unit. We have our physical consequences, our psychiatric consequences. Right across the board, you'll see in every ward, you'll see people who have an addiction problem. They won't be diagnosed as such. They'll be diagnosed as one of the consequences. But we need to be able to recognize that we have got this addictive nature. I don't have an addictive personality. My personality is ebullient, is ramshackle, is all over the place. And that's just me. But it's nothing to do with being an addict. That's me. My addictive nature is the thing that drives me towards doing the crazy things that I've done in my addictive history. So the 12-step program actually looks at all of that. And on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm going to deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And I learn something at every new meeting. Every meeting I go to, I hear something that says, golly, never thought of that. Because if I'm awake and listening and thinking, then I will benefit. If I'm just there twiddling my thumbs, yes, I'm told to go to meetings, so I'll go to a meeting. You won't benefit at all. Going to a meeting is an active process of listening and contributing. If you say nothing, you won't get anything back. If you, all you say is, my name is Robert and I'm an addict, you'll get something because the meeting becomes yours. You're part of it. And that way we can all benefit from just by opening our mouths. And then if you're going to say something, keep it short. We don't want to know your life history. You can do that with your sponsor or with anybody else, but just keep it short. Say something simple. You know, I remember, you know, my dear friend Tim saying, I, I don't, don't know how, how, how to stop. And that's all he said. And every one of us knew where he was coming from. Just in that one sentence, he'd made a whole room full of friends. So, you know, working the steps is the only way I know of treating the spiritual malady, the sense of inner emptiness. For all the other things, 
marital problems, the financial problems, all the rest of it. Yeah, there are many, many ways of helping that. And of course, in a rehab, one does look at those things as well. So a rehab is not simply 12 steps. It's also practical or should be. Um, if anyone is, a, you've already touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to go back to it and visit again. If anyone who's tuning into this at the moment, who his head is just full of of the 12 steps and 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 maybe on that 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 situation where they're at that point where they're ready for for jumping off point as we call it they they can't live with alcohol they can't live without it uh, we yeah. can't live without it they're at that critical stage and yeah. if you were to um, address them uh, what would be your advice how, how would you if someone came into your office now and says i'm at that stage how would you, what would you be your first open gambit, so to speak? I would say that I did six years of university, three years at Cambridge and three years at Middlesex Hospital, and I was taught not a single thing about addictive disease. I was taught about the consequences, the overdoses, the heart attacks, the strokes, and so on. I was taught about the consequences. Doctors are not trained to understand addiction. They're trained to prescribe. So, as doctors, they prescribe, prescribe, prescribe. That's what they do. That's what they're trained to. So, I find that you're not likely to get help from a doctor, unless that doctor happens to be someone who, who is in recovery from an addiction problem. But AA are the people who really know about this. So, what I would suggest to your friend who, who can't live with it, but can't live without it, Get in touch with AA, phone them up, and they will be delighted. They have helplines all the time. They're open right now. You know, phone them. Just look it up. Look up the, the address of your new meeting, of the local meeting. It's on the web. And so this way, the real experts are the people who've got it. I'm, I'm trained. You know, I've been 24 times or 31 times, I think it is, to America to get all my training in addiction. Um, because at the time that I set up my rehab, there, there weren't any training courses in the UK. Uh, together with Professor Stevenson, I set up the first addiction psychology um, MSc course in the UK at the University of London South Bank. You know, um, my first counselors, um, you know, hadn't got anything uh, because they hadn't been trained. So. It's very necessary to train, and the training is there now. But the people who are really going to help are the other addicts. In the meeting I was at this morning was my friend, I'll call him Jay. I put him into the Charter Clinic in Radnor Walk because I found him face down, uh, naked in the middle of the day, drunk as a skunk. And so I heard about the Charter Clinic and I popped him in there. And I went to see him in the evenings. Um, just to say hello and to find out how he was getting on. And he told me that he was following this abstinent program. He'd been told he shouldn't drink at all. And I said, Jay, I, I, that's not very strong. Why don't you learn to drink sensibly? And he said, well, that's not what we're being taught here. And by the time I'd finished, after seeing him every evening for six weeks, he trust at me. He got me into, to acknowledge my addiction. I'd never seen it. And it was obvious. Anybody else could see it, but I couldn't. But Jay helped me. Well, 35 years later, we were in the same meeting this morning. Oh, how amazing is that? That's a beautiful story. And that is really how it works, isn't it? It is a very, very simple programme for really quite complex people or people that com complicate their own lives. I don't know which is... And what, what I would like to ask you before we finish, I know we're coming um, close to one o'clock now, is um, I'm really passionate. I mean, I'm in 12-step recovery. I'm a recovering alcoholic addict and I'm also a recovering family member as well. So how important um, would you say family recovery is? Because I know it played a major part in my rehabilitation into, into the world and our relationship as well. It saved our marriage, to be honest. 
Um, but I would love to know what your views are on family recovery. I think family um, recovery is absolutely vital. If you help this person without helping that person, they'll find someone else. And then another one. And then another one. You need to help both sides. Now, when I built my rehab, I had a six-bed family unit, residential. And after three months, not one single patient had arrived. And the family counselor had to go. Families are very reluctant to believe that they have a problem. No, the problem was with the addict. Sort him out, I'm fine. Oh, yes? Well, then how come you've looked up everything you possibly can on the web to find out about addiction? How come you've talked to specialists here, there and everywhere? How come you've done absolutely everything but neglected your own family while you've been trying to look after, you know, the, the particular addict? You've looked after everybody else but not the addict. You haven't actually helped them. Sorry, I said that the wrong way around. You've, you've spent time with the addict, but not with anybody else. So you've neglected all the other members of the family. I had a lady whose son died 10 years previously, and she was still full of remorse for not doing enough. She put in three extra telephone call, um, lines in her home so that she could be on the phone simultaneously to people all over the world. Her, she, eventually, she lost her husband. He just got fed up. Her younger son got fed up and she was still grieving. And I understand the grief 10 years later. And I said, you're keeping his spirit trapped. Let him go to his own future life. That's where my life, my wife Meg is now. She's having her own spiritual journey. And I think family members try to be the higher power of the addict. And that is not, not helpful. It's actually very destructive. What families tend to do is love, educate, punish. Three things that don't work. Love doesn't work, education doesn't work, punishment doesn't work. Now what does work is love, education and punishment, but it's in a different form. It's the love that one addict gives to another. That's what works. So A, reaching out to help B, A gets well. The education is what we've been doing for the last hour talking about addicted disease and recovery. And the punishment is the punishment we give ourselves. I really don't want to go back to the way I was. I'm very happy indeed to have this opportunity to share, share my experience, my strength and my hope with all of you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't thank you enough. And you know what? There's so many more things that I want to talk to you about. I would like to keep you. Um, I would possibly like to move in with you and just ask you lots and lots of questions because I think you are a font of wisdom and wonderfulness. And I would love for you to come back and talk about maybe creativity in recovery and and the life beyond your wildest dreams because that's really what I'm passionate about is helping people in recovery to achieve their greatest potential in recovery and um, so I'd be really uh, really up for you doing that if you if you wouldn't mind Robert. I'd be thrilled this is what I'm going to be doing this afternoon I'll show you that is my keyboard on which you'll see my manuscript paper I've wrote the first two bars, uh, the first two lines of music yesterday. I shall fill in the next four this afternoon. So the creativity is what it's about. Otherwise, what's the point of life? I'm having the life of my dreams and I've been very privileged to come back. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much, Robert. I'd just like to say thank you. It's a privilege to, to uh, listen to you. I could lis listen to you all day. Um, and I just want to say thank you. Yeah, thank you, Robert. And definitely, you know, um, 
there's lots of questions. I would really encourage people to continue to ask questions. We can always send them to Robert. And Robert is on Facebook as well. Um, but there's lots of questions on our Facebook page that I'll I'll get back to. And if there's any questions that I can't answer that are aimed at you, Robert, I'll just forward them on to you. But thank you so much. I really, really, like I said, I really do appreciate your time and your wisdom and just your willingness to be of service, you know, and... And, and share that wisdom with other people. So thank you so much. And I will be in touch about coming back, if that's okay. Thank you. Thank no. you, Claire. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And we'll see everybody next week. So thanks, everyone, for joining us. And, yeah, see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Kennedy Street. Please visit Kennedy Street at www.kennedystreetcio.org. Recovery does exist. <laughs>